Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, the podcast where we talk about new books in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm your host, David Schwartz. Today, you'll be hearing from Mark Doisy, Associate Professor at Indiana University, about his book, Media Life. It's an important work about the inescapability of media and its place in our lives. We hope you enjoy the interview. And Mark, thanks for being with us today. Um, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Mark has written uh, uh, the book Media Life, and he's written a number of books. And uh, it, this book is particularly fascinating, a, a look at media being all around us. And as we'll get into more with the interview, that uh, much like fish in water, um, many people don't even know that they are part of it. But before we get into that, Mark, uh, if you would, just give us a little bit of your background and where you came from and how you really got into the subject. Well, I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm originally from the Netherlands and um, worked there as a journalist. I worked as a journalist in South Africa for a while. And when I got back um, through all kinds of circumstances, as things go, I ended up in a PhD program at the University of Amsterdam. And, um, and somehow I always wanted to come to the United States. So directly afterwards, I, I moved to U.S., first to L.A., and now I'm here in Bloomington, Indiana, working at Indiana University. And, um, you know, being a former journalist, I so, uh, the one thing that led me to media life in particular was that I've always had uh, – I've really enjoyed teaching these these large introductory media and society kind of courses that every university has. And you know, you stand in front of four, five, six hundred students and, and you do a lot of show and tell and it's kind of exciting. Media is always new, so it's kind of cool. And I'm increasingly, uh, I've done that for about 10 or 11 years or so. And increasingly, I started to realize that what I was telling these students, these largely 18 to 20 year olds about media was one, not new to them. They, in, in a way, were way more, uh, had way more expertise when it comes to media use than I uh, would ever have, especially considering all the newer media. And secondly, it kind of made no sense to them. It was like I was constantly trying to un- unlearn what they already learned by simply growing up in media. And, uh, and this is the problem of the entire media literacy debate. It's, it's like it's imposing something on people that are already to some extent media literate, maybe not critically, but certainly, uh, uh practically are media literate. Sure. So I, and, and, and so at some point I, I, I thought, what if I'm wrong and they're right? <laughs> what if my feeble attempts to wrestle control over their media away from them, put it on a big screen in a PowerPoint, uh, slap some theory on it and then push it back at them. What if that is not the right way of doing it? Engagement with media, this sort of total immersion that they're used to from you know, being just little kids growing up with the internet, the World Wide Web and mobile telecommunications. What, are, what if that's where the key is to understanding uh, the role of media in our lives? So when I started to flip that switch, uh, I found way more interesting questions to ask and things to do research on than I did before. And uh, so that's what led me to the Media Life book. Sure. Now, you previously put out the book Media Work. Is this an extension of that or is, it, is the name just a coincidence? Well, um, so the media work is really a bridge between my two main research projects. And the first one was sort of looking at the working lives of journalists and media professionals in general. And the second project is sort of media and society, media and everyday life in more general terms. And what I try to do with media work is sort of to close, at least for a while, the chapter on journalists and expand the research that I did among journalists to media workers in other professions like digital games, uh, film, television, uh, advertising, and um, sort of like lay down kind of a roadmap, like understanding the the, the way people in these kind of professions uh, make it work, like Tim Gunn of uh, Project Runway always says. And uh, But also um, um, starting to build a bridge to media life in the sense that one could assume that the people best positioned to 
to successfully adapt and survive in a, in a media life are people who professionally make media. So uh, in a way for me, that was a stepping stone to the broader media life project by looking at the people who arguably would be best at it to study them first. So you make a point in, in early in the book to, to talk about the cover of the book, which is kind of rare when you know, talk to faculty who have books um, come out Oftentimes, the cover is the is the the nightmare part of it, or the, or just the eye rolling part, where they can't quite get it to fit with what the text of the book is about. Right. Um, that's not the case here. So, you know, this is an audio podcast. So, for the listeners, that the cover of the book is um, they, they are fish swimming. So, if you would please explain the symbolism of the fish. Well, pretty cool cover designs, and the way this worked that. Uh a couple of years ago, when I pitched this project to them, um, sort of uh, wrote a prospectus and they sent it out re- for review. Um, the editor that I used to work with on media work, which was also published by Public Policy Press, I mean, she, she was apparently really excited about generally work with. Apparently, he or she was also inspired. And so before I even had a contract or reviews on a prospectus, they sent me this cover image, sort of like, this is... You, this is sort of our key inspiration. This is what we were thinking about. Uh, what do you think? And it, so, to to be honest, before I even written a single word, I already had my book cover. Hmm. And in a way, I I let the, I, I I revisited that book cover from time and time and reminded myself what is the overall argument I'm trying to make. Um, uh, living in media like fish in water. I mean, the media sustain us. We They are inevitable, but we also become blind to them. It fits so well as a metaphor um, and uh, towards the point, overall point I was trying to make um, that it was just really useful. Okay, Mark, there are some parts, uh, themes carried through this book about the inescapability of media, but, but uh, it's important to, to clarify what exactly it is that you mean by media, because you're not referring to you know to TV or just to internet or, or explain what you first mean by just the term media. Well, um, in a way, this book is part of a of a broader sort of uh, literature that is that is relatively new. I would argue. I mean, the last couple of years, several uh, authors have made similar points that one of the problems of media studies or studying media is is that we. Uh, we tend to fetishize media as technologies, as devices, as shiny toys. Uh, I think the point was originally made by Nicholas Garnham already in the early 90s, but, but especially in recent years, a lot of authors in media studies have made the point, like, we actually should stop studying media and, and remind each other what we're actually studying, which is people and, and their relationships. And um, so when I talk about media in the book, I've tried to make explicit then that inevitably includes the technologies, the shiny toys, uh, the wires, the cables, the screens, the devices, the artifacts. But it also, at any moment when one or when I use the term media, that, I mean, just, just observing what people in everyday life do with media, how they in- integrate media in what, way, what they do, just their physical behavior, their interactions with each other through devices, their... their uh, um, and the fact that most of our media use is productive in one way or another, right? We make media as we use media. And uh, on a third level, so beyond media as devices and media as what we do, uh, I think media always um, should include, our definition of media should always include media as, as arrangements, as how our everyday lives are structured, are organized um, uh, in the context of our media use. And, and, and I mean, the, 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 the easiest example of a social media is uh, between people when they're trying to meet. Uh, hey, let's meet tomorrow at two. And then five minutes before two, the texting start like I'm, I'm 10 minutes late. I'm five minutes out. I'm around the corner. I'm in the bus and so on and so forth. Um, and this kind of sort of coordination of our lives uh, through media is a small example of a much broader uh, theme that, that carries throughout the book. And so media are, are yes, they are devices and they're cool technologies, and it's, it's important to look inside their black box, if you will. But it's much more media in our lives. The role of media extends way beyond that, and we sometimes uh, forget that in our studies. You mentioned it's, it's not about so much the medium as it is studying the people. Can you expand on that, please? 
Well, um, when you talk about media, and, and especially uh, uh, assuming that media are inseparable from anything we do and anything we think and any relationship we hope to maintain in our lives, then RGR is a way of looking at ourselves and each other. Um, and, and really nothing more or nothing less. It doesn't mean that the medium, the specifics of the medium aren't important. They're incredibly important. It just means that, um, that ultimately media uh, are, are a way uh, for us to, um, to look at ourselves and our role in the world, the way we take responsibility for what we're doing. Um, and, and, and so I, I guess it's, it's, it's like a, perspe- a traditional perspective uh, that comes to us from sociology or social psychology with the difference that it includes an appreciation of the fact that, that there really isn't a relationship anymore that we have with that doesn't involve media one way or another and that that makes a difference both in terms of what we can do and what we can know about each other and the planet but also in terms of how we can actually see ourselves live. And I think that is a unique contribution that media studies can make to the study of the social. You have a chapter called No Life Outside Media. Uh, Talk about what this chapter was and whether this was uh, the the title of the chapter was an exaggeration or really in in developed countries there truly is no life outside media. (laughs) Yeah, um, that's a good question. and people sometimes make this argument, well, how can you sustain the argument that there's, that, that we live in media if you consider that, um, you know, so many people on the planet don't have access to electricity or, um, there's still two billion people on the planet who never seen a cell phone or stuff like that. And, and that's a valid comment. But the, the, the problem of that comment is that it equates media with devices and technologies only. And, of course, that's not just everything that media is. And, and I could make silly arguments about the pervasiveness of media technologies uh, all um, around the, uh, the world. Um, it, I, could, I could make a comment about the four and a half billion people who have access to mobile phones in the world. I could argue – I could point of, of broadband internet in developing countries – but that would be almost silly in the sense that, that I mean, it's clear that, that media are as technologies, that is. But in terms of what people do and how people orient themselves towards the world, if, if you are in a place in the, on the planet that doesn't have Wi-Fi access and there isn't a television, there is no electricity, but you want your voice heard, you want people to see you, you have to work with media. You have to get access to media. The only way the story actually can be told or that you can be seen involves media. So um, in that sense, media are everywhere. And of course, the way the rest of the world understands the pockets on the planet that don't have access to media comes to them through media. And we tend not to visit those places. Um, and and so, so there is this uh, very... Um, I think intricate relationship. It's it's like what uh, British sociologist Anthony Giddens suggests about globalization. That the 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 key to understanding the current phase of globalization that that nobody is outside anymore. Right? Nobody escapes the effects of globalization. Right. Or- of who or where you are on the planet. I think the same goes for media or what especially European scholars are now beginning to call mediatization, sort of the, 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 the fusion of, of almost all, all elements of life with media uh, really don't escape any, any of us anymore. And so the, no life outside of media in a way is, 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 is an attempt to address that particular um, uh, fact. This idea of globalization and, and Giddens' work um, – you know, being, it's being you know really impossible to to live outside of it. Uh, what kind of influence, or maybe it wasn't, uh, was the uh, the book Mediopolis on on the performance of of your work? Um, um you, you mean Roger Silver? I'm sorry. The uh, um um. Yes, yes, I think it was a uh, Schoenberg and, and De Jong, uh, the Mediopolis. Oh, yes, oh, that book. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, that's that's a fantastic book. I don't think I don't know how how well it was adopted in English speaking countries when it came out, but it's 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 really brilliant. The, the cool thing about that book is it's written by architects 
who uh, people who study architects and architecture and and I mean the literature on architecture and the literature by architects through the ages, especially throughout the 20th century, uh, was tremendously useful for my argument. I mean, my first chapter of the book is largely based on literature coming to us from architecture, and um, because. Especially among architects, you see a willingness to look at the physical world and the social world as intertwined, as not separate, as 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 really f- uh, f- co-constituent. And I think that is sometimes sometimes something that gets lost in studying media is that media and our li- and our everyday lives are are co-constituent. They they there really is no separating them out anymore in any meaningful way. And if you do, you have to control for so many variables that, that I would assume that whatever you're going to find in terms of effects are, are, are their explanatory power tends to be rather minimal. Except of course there are exceptions, but so, so I mean, and that, that willingness to, 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 to consider those boundaries between us as human beings and the way we interact and our material environment um, is I think strong, expressed most forcefully in 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 among geographers, uh, architects, people who study architecture, and um, and so um, uh, Schallenberg and the Young's book, uh, the Mediapolis, where they look at the relationships between, on the one hand, pervasive media and ubiquitous media, on the other hand, sort of the design of urban areas and broader social trends is 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 truly uh, uh truly cool uh, i i think scholarly work but it is cool <laughs> yeah and and that's very much on, on the physical space uh you also touch on the um sort of like the digital space and, and you have this idea of being caught you know in the grip of the immediate um is, is that uh just a, a function of of media or is that a function of, of just the speeding up of everyday lives well, I, th- I think um, it's really important to 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 do, and I think within the broader media life argument, to, to do two things at the same time, which is on the one hand um, to articulate and be mindful of what is happening now, uh, the kind of technologies that we have that are ubiquitous now, that uh, the, the touch screen technology, uh, mobile technology, every everything and every everyone is wired, always on, very much sort of a feature feature of of the here and now. At the same time, it's equally important to realize that almost, if not everything, that is happening now happened before or could at the very least be considered as an amplification of what happened before. And I, and I, and with before, I mean way back till the very first cave paintings. I mean, I always tell my students that Facebook wall isn't called a wall for no reason. It's the same wall as in the caves of, you know, that we find in France or in Africa uh, with the kind of beautiful paintings that we see there. I mean, it's, it's, we tell each other stories about who we are, what the hell we're supposed to be doing, and how to survive. Well, that's what the cave paintings were for, too, and that's what our Facebook wall is about, too. So, in a way, nothing what happens right now is unique or particular to the now. At the same time, there is something particular about now. And, 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 and I think uh, as scholars or researchers, we tend to have a tendency to opt for either the historical analogy or the sort of uh, uh, the, the situation as it is right now, and of course in everyday life, in sort of you know what people just do with their lives, uh, we definitely seem to be caught in a grip of the immediate, as Paul Oster describes it so beautifully in his work, which is this this the, the, the speed at which technology seems to renew itself. And uh, the feverishness with which this goes, I mean, um, right now we see stories in the news how stock, stock market prices for Apple are falling, even though sales of new Apple products are skyrocketing because for investors, things don't happen fast enough. And things already seem to go way faster than anybody can comprehend. So things seem to be constantly changing and, and it's almost like a... Uh, you have to be right in it right now to to really figure it out. But and and I would say that is important. That is part of our responsibility of scholars to be mindful of that, and at the same time uh, um, have that historical perspective, and and also find a theoretical angle that doesn't cancel one or the other out. I think that's a great point, and I think that's a good time to transition into one part of this book that I 
probably the best part of this book in, in from my reading of it um, is that this book is hopeful and, and there are a lot of, a lot of books out there about technology and what's to endure our society and whatnot. And, and it's, and it's quite, it's, mis, it's misanthropic, but this one, you talk about ways that it can enhance our lives and media doesn't have to be this thing that's going to force us to only live in the immediate and, you know, forget about memories and, and whatever else. Um, is that something that, that hopefulness that I read into it, um, was that intended? And is that something that you came across as you were writing the book that you felt that way? Or was it something that you believed all along, even before the writing began? Um, it, it's a combination of a couple of things. I mean, first and foremost, I would say as a scholar, it's inspired by uh, Richard Rorty, the American uh, pragmatist philosopher who uh, one of the collections of his uh, essays is called Philosophy and Social Hope. And in, in that collection, he makes the argument that philosophy without social hope is, is pointless, is a pointless, is an, is an academic exercise. And, um, and that really sort of, that always really inspired me. It's, it's this notion that, that to keep things moving forward, to keep things progressing, to keep opening up new doors, new ways of looking, looking out into the light is, 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 I, I take that as a responsibility that we have as scholars. And that doesn't mean that people who look backwards and see darkness are wrong. Um, absolutely. But like you said, I think enough of us are doing that already and much better than I could ever do it. So, <laughs> so, so that's one thing. So it's a pragmatic point of view. And, and, and on a personal level, there, there is a, Another argument for this is that um, I consider myself an optimist uh, and, and I always have a tendency to see uh, the best uh, in, in everything. I mean, while being mindful of the things that are crappy and all that, of course. And um, um, so it was um, uh, midway through writing this book, my, my, my dad passed away and my dad was the ultimate optimist. And so after dealing with that loss and I came back to writing, I noticed that my writing was changing near the end of the book and becoming more and more optimistic, more and more looking forward, more and more sort of like, um, let's not think about media in terms of how to escape or how to control it, but how to sort of have fun with it and, and take responsibility because that seems to me like a much more, and I, I, while I was writing, I was sort of, I was feeling like this is what my dad would have said about this stuff if he would have been interested in it. <laughs> and so it was also a very personal sort of statement for me, uh, um, um, uh, next to sort of an, an academic exercise in the sense that, you know, philosophy without social hope, as Rorty says, might just well be a rather uh, meaningless exercise. Well, not to read your own words at you, but you have this fantastic line on the, on the last page of the book of, it is the privilege of our times to use media to make art with life. And, and hearing you now, I'm thinking of one at the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about your students and you realized after a while that maybe you could learn something from them. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also a part in the book in the, in the, media, in the uh, Society and Media uh, chapter in which you go through some previous people's work and bring up th this idea of uh, ephebidophobia, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, of this fear of, right. of of what you know young people will be doing to adults <clears throat> excuse me yeah um you talk about the media's place with youth culture and and almost this ups how it's turned some parts of society upside down in which maybe it is the younger sect that can be teaching us about this new life yeah, and, and uh, you know, this is not nece a necessary element uh, or, or a feature of being young uh, because, um, as you know, certain media are adopted much faster by other generations as well. So it's, it's not an, a unique feature of being young. But, I mean, uh, what you said earlier, mo the, the most of our most misanthropic or doom and gloom type of, of analyses about media in the world – are to some extent uh, riffs on oh my god look at the kids and what they're doing yeah, right they like their robotic pets better than their real life ones or um, they um, they sext more than they go out on dates in the real world or you know, whatever they they spend more time on Wikipedia than in the classroom listening to an inspiring lecture and it's 
and all those things are are to some extent true. I mean, that, that well, that's I'm, I'm I'm quite sure of it. I see it happening in my own classrooms. But at the same time, the same time, almost every study that you see among young people, especially in developed worlds, in developed countries, nations, are the things we actually want them to care about. You know, like the environment. Uh, you know, poverty, um, incense. Uh, so it's not that the people are disengaged or apathetic or they don't care anymore. It's just that, and and I think the work that is done by colleagues on the way uh, uh, young people in particular navigate social media and issues such as privacy that come with that, what that what that has in common with the way young people engage with the planet or democracy or the world around them is that it is increasingly on, on their own terms. Now, on the one hand, that's a feature of an individualized culture, right, where we are more likely to, to, to engage if we feel that it has something to do with us personally. Um, and and on the and and we're less likely to engage as, as if it's mandated to some kind of social institution, like for example a political party. And uh, um, on the other hand, it's a feature of our technologies. There are technologies that constantly speak to us, almost literally, and and say, "You are special. You are unique. You are alone on the world. Here's you everything that you want as an individual." Um, and so you would assume, oh, well, that means that people really only care about themselves. But the interesting thing is, if you look at what's hap- what, what have been the main news netlines of the last two or three years, Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street, even the Tea Party, and similar kind of the Indignados movement in Spain, and so on and so forth, what they all have in common is like a large contingent, if not the dominant contingent of young people, Speaking up, uh, acting out a passionate kind of engagement with the world. Um, and I didn't see those kind of stories before. Um, the only difference is what, what happened before is that they don't do it as Democrats or Republicans or as union members or something like that. They do it as a constellation of fragmented individuals standing up for something. And uh, I, 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 am, I tend to be hopeful about that. And, and anybody arguing that those social movements didn't make a big difference clearly has, is, there, is, there is definitely something going on that even in, in the ultimate individualization and personalization that we're, that we're in, both technologically and socially or culturally, I should say, that, that there are uh, more expressions of collective voice than I can remember uh, in the last couple of decades. Th- the difference is that yes, they are different types of expressions. They tend not to be. Uh, they tend not to sustain themselves for a very long time, and they come and go rather randomly, seemingly. Uh, but it doesn't make them any less meaningful, or, or, or doesn't make me any less hopeful for what what that bodes for the future. As quickly as they go away, uh, sometimes the voices or the causes go away. Do you think that's because the cause just sort of sort of just you know, peters out, or, or or is it because there is so much media that that it it, it can be distracting? Um, well, first of all, there's always been more media that we can handle. So, uh, so that th- that whole media information overload argument just never really convinces me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, on a cognitive level, um, nobody can comprehend all the information that's in one newspaper. So, so uh, we, we pick and choose. Uh, and generally we pick and choose on the basis of what feels relevant to us. And, 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 and now our technologies are completely designed around that premise. Uh, um, and back in the day, they, maybe they weren't or, or much less so, but ultimately that's how we function. And, uh, you know, we're lazy <laughs> and that's how we survive. Uh, we, <laughs> Everything we can't process, everything in around us, we go nuts, and and uh, would cost us way too many resources. So so uh, um, so that, that that is one sort of you know question that I have uh, in this context. Now, the fact that 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 people's engagement with the world around them, like for example, when they do stand up for something they believe in. Um, whether it's cheering for a fellow classmate who publicly comes out after a long time being in the closet, whether whether camping out on a public square as part of an Occupy movement, whether, you know, really anything, uh, any kind of engagement. Yes, it tends to be 
sh- short and passionate, and then it sort of peters out. And the people who who stood up at one moment uh, a couple of years later perhaps won't. Uh, Obama noticed that when he tried to rally support for his re-election campaign, that all the young kids that came out and, and were active for him four years ago, a lot of them just didn't show this time. Um, does that mean that people's engagement is any less worthwhile or meaningful or that they won't engage with something else later on? No, no, not really. It just means that, again, uh, people's engagement in the world has, a, and if you're cynical, you would say it has a consumer, consumerist quality, right? It's like, uh, it's, it's like our, our, our engagement in the world is like wandering around a shopping mall sometimes and bellyache, and sometimes you walk into a shop uh, of Amnesty International and Greenpeace and sign up for a campaign. It's, it's, it's like whatever you feel like at the moment. Now, that is very disconcerting for social institutions and for a society that has outsourced uh, its, its self-governance to these institutions. Because people don't have a permanent loyalty to these institutions anymore. At least most people don't. And, and that, so that, that feels very precarious, that people's engagement is precarious. On the other hand, on the flip side, uh, um, I would totally buy into that argument if people didn't engage anymore. But clearly that's not what's happening. That's absolutely not what's happening. It's just they engage in different ways. And, and to be mindful about that and to see the, the, the part of our responsibility as scholars. And then to me, an added element to that is, is of course, uh, the role of media and all of this, how media both and, um, and at the same time can be used to, to perhaps give this new type of engagement a bit more body uh, um, than it could, that it already could have. Sure. Now, by pure coincidence, before I read your book, um, I picked up Sherry Turkle's Alone Together. Yes. And then, lo and behold, I'm, your book is next, and here comes the chapter Together Alone. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, and then, and then you, you referenced Professor Turkle in there. Talk about that chapter Together Alone. And, and I think what was really interesting was the idea of the, of the silent discos. Yes. Um, the example that you used, tell the listeners a little bit about what the silent discos are and the idea of Together Alone. Well, first of all, the title for the chapter was already written before her book came out. So it was not some, some kind of like, you know, oh, a funny pun. <laughs> hey, wow. I mean, she, 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 I mean, it's the, the other way around and let's see what she does with it. And of course, she had alienating potential of, of, of contemporary technology and media in particular and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's a trope that runs throughout much of the contemporary critical literature. Um, and the, 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 how, how we're stuck in our sort of personal media bubbles, uh, how, how we become blind to coexistence. Uh, this is an argument that the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk makes in his uh, Spheres trilogy. Um, um, and, and, and you can see it uh, as a pervasive argument, I would say, through much of the media uh, uh, literature. And, and it, it, it's, it's, it's easy to understand why. I mean, uh, look, we're human beings. We're social animals. We spend most of our time in our lives figuring out the relationships with other human beings. That, that is our prime, I would say in a Star Trek sense, our prime directive is like, you know, Deal with other people, like your colleagues, your mates, your friends, your family. I mean, that's that's where the bulk of our time. Media becomes part of everything we do, everything we think about. Ergo, the first question we tend to ask, almost like biologically, I would say, we're wired to ask this question. Well, does that make us better at managing all these relationships or does it make us suck at all these relationships? And lo and behold, generally, we assume or conclude that it's not helping, right? That our relationships are not improving, that in fact, we tend to avoid relationships uh, through uh, these media. We become more alone, uh, even though we're coming more connected all the time because these technologies connect. And, and oh, oh, what are we going to do about it? And shouldn't we go back to the real world of real engagement and know, our, know who our neighbors are and stuff like that? And, and it, to me, that's all too easy. Um, it's, it, I mean, to, to see, to, to assume that there's an either or going on, that, right? That you either we're getting more alone or we're getting more closely connected. Either we live in, or we're all, you know, in our pajamas in the attic, you know, playing World of Warcraft. It, it's way too easy. And in fact, in every instance of being alone in media, our examples 
numerous examples of exactly playing World of Warcraft is generally part of a clan that is incredibly meaningful to them and provides a sincere bond and connection. Um, and the people high-fiving on the town square generally do so with their earphones in, their headphones on, or, or, or with an with iPhone c- c- clap to their ear because they're killing the dead time of traversing the town square while they're on their way somewhere else. So um, um, being together and being alone as mutual op- as, as opposites or as exclusive ca- categories doesn't cut it. Um, it, 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 there's definitely something that happens at the same at, at the same time. So that's when I use the silent disco as a metaphor. And right? you know, the silent disco is where people spin different type of tunes that people can tune into with their headphones. And the the the, the, the silent disco came for, uh, uh, was born out of an attempt to circumvent uh, city ordinances that prevented outdoor discos late at night because of the noise. And so a silent disco would be silent, so you could have the parties throughout the night in public spaces uh, in downtown areas without offending anybody. And um, um, now, for me, the silent disco is a powerful metaphor in a couple of different directions at once. First, it's a clear example of people being together and alone at the same time, um, and at the same time having a lot of fun. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a silent disco or you've seen this. There's thousands of clips of silent discos on, on sites like YouTube. Um, you're not seeing people there not having fun. They are having fun. This is a lot of fun. I mean, I've attended a couple. Uh, it's 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 kind of cool. I mean, you feel kind of weird and at the same time. And I think that element, that that being alone and together at the same time isn't necessarily bad, nor is it necessarily good, but it can be a lot of fun depending on what you do with it. I think that's an important point for me in, in within the overall arc of the book. But there's another another element of this metaphor that I think is useful to consider is that our loneliness or connectedness in media isn't just with other people, but it's also with ourselves. In a sense that, uh, um, in a very literal sense, I mean, we all leave a digital shadow behind every time we switch on a computer, when we serve the web, when we open our, make phone calls, when, you know, play video games. All this stuff is logged in databases somewhere. Every time we use a customer card, uh, plastic, right, credit cards, debit cards, everything we do is one way or another recorded and stored in all kinds of databases. And a lot of those databases are public or can be made uh, public. And a lot of these databases we fill ourselves, like when you fill out personal details, uh, when we register all these different versions of ourselves that quite really live in media next to uh, us living our own lives. And we are in constant communication with those versions of ourselves. And I would argue that that, one way of thinking about the silent disco as a metaphor for media life is dancing with all these other versions of yourself. And, um, and generally that is that an awareness of that, of our digital shadow is prefaced with, well, that's dangerous. That's big brothers watching you. That's kind of scary. You be aware. Well, yes. On the other hand, everybody's watching everybody else. That could be a very bleak kind of 1984 kind of miserable society, but it could also be one where we can truly act out a version of ourselves that has a story to tell and a story that uh, co-author. And I, and I think that's a really powerful idea that really speaks to what a lot of young people, uh, I speak about my students primarily, uh, uh, but also what you see in social value surveys, that, that the prime social value that people appreciate in their lives is the ability to express themselves, to make themselves heard, to have a voice, to be seen, to be recognized. And I think our media uh, uh, um, give us that power. That, uh, as, as Manuel Castells calls it, that communication power that we that we do have. The question is not so much whether that's good or bad for us, but the question is what can we do with that that is both fun, like dancing in a social disco, but also has a, has an element of of social responsibility, of ethics to it, and 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 so that I think that that dual sort of ethics and aesthetics for me is really important thinking about these themes. Um, is it, <clears throat> excuse me again, is it worth it in your mind? You know, we, all, we have all these opportunities and, and a chance to define ourselves to large numbers of people in ways that people haven't had a chance to do before. 
Um, you mentioned the possibility of surveillance um, coming from government bodies or just coming from the general public. Um, do you think that's a worthwhile trade-off? Well, the, the thing I would say, I mean, we know from research that that we are biologically wired to respond to the threat or the possibility or the illusion of being seen, right? I mean, if, if, if we think that we're being watched, not necessarily by cameras, but by, by somebody else, by our parents, <laughs> um, we tend to modify our behavior. That is sort of, that is, that, that's built into our systems. That's something that we do. Yes, you can ask 17th, 17th or 18th century has, have, have, have exponentially increased and, and, and really pervade uh, our, all our lives. And, and increasingly that surveillance doesn't have a top-down quality anymore where it's clear who is surveilling whom and it's, it's a few watching the many, government bodies, corporations, security uh, uh, services. But it's increasingly all of us, right? We're all watching each other. I mean, what Twitter and Facebook really are are, are um, um, massive uh, prisons where every, all the all, where there's no guards, and, and every all, and we're all watching each other, making sure that nobody leaves, and everybody likes and recommends and is fun and cool and pretty all the time. And yeah, to some extent, that's definitely what's going on. Uh, um, I would argue it's not that different from what's going on without this massive prison that you can call social media because in everyday life we would dress up if we go to a party we put perfume on if we you know trying to make ourselves look better than we really perhaps really are and and so so forth so so deception and and putting on a mask and media and uh, under the consequence of surveillance isn't a unique feature of our media or of our society but it can definitely um, without sort of a mindful approach to it, um, um, go into a direction where we start to live according to the expectations people have of us that are built or based on what they know about us through media. And that is an, that is a, that is an interesting uh, issue to, to focus on. Eh? So when a student, for example, tells me, I increasingly see people at parties acting out certain scenarios knowing that that it will be the, the the best way to get themselves photographed and tagged on Facebook the next day. And um, it's a small example of a broader issue as to what extent are we still who we are online or in media. Uh, and and, and, and when, when do we start investing more time in maintaining the version of ourselves that exists in media than um, the, the per- person who we think we authentically are? And and I would argue that in the media life, that line between those two different person, persons has already gone. Um, and and for example, the, the the current in the United States, the current uh, upheaval about this football player and his fake girlfriend that only existed in media, and Monty Teo, I think is his name, um, is a wonderful example for of, of this for me. Is it's like. You know, at what point does a relationship that you have with somebody in media becomes more about maintaining that relationship and whatever you seem to be getting out of it rather than questioning whether that relationship is real in the real world? And, uh, and in itself, I'm not questioning the validity or, uh, or, or when those two worlds start to fuse, how can we maintain some kind of sense of self? And, and some kind of sense of 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 of, uh, um, of, of authenticity, perhaps rather than truth, uh, if you will. So so th- so that's that's where my thinking go- is going. And 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 so surveillance, if it's not a property of top-down organizations or institutions, but it's really a constituent element of everything that we do in media to each other, uh, as well as to the society we live in. Well, that gives also tremendous opportunity and it comes with responsibility. It's like what I would tell my students is that we get to participate and witness a social movement like the Arab Spring, right? We forward cool things on on Facebook and all that kind of stuff, Uh, what we see happening. Well, that witnessing comes with responsibility. And, uh, and, And so it opens up opportunities to engage with the world rather than world of of complete surveillance if that makes any sense it does and you know we're starting to wind down but i if you will allow me to nerd out for just a moment 
Um, I'm a graduate student, but I'm an older graduate student. And when I was younger, you, you referenced um, a campy movie that I loved, Demolition Man. Yeah. yeah uh, Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes and a very young Sandra Bullock. And, right. you know, it's a day when we're even intercourse is mediated, you know, because the fluids are icky, I think was the line. Um, sure. You mentioned American Psycho and you mentioned Truman Show. And there's a lot there in the book that's wrapped up in the Truman Show. And I think the last question I want to ask is, at the end of the movie, Jim Carrey, whose entire life has been a TV show that everybody knows that except for him, he's trying to sail toward the the end of the world, or toward the end of his world. And he he hits it. He hits the the fabric from where the set ends, and then he leaves his mediated world. And you say in the book that that was the wrong action for him to do, at least in the context of, of your book and the movie. Explain what you mean by what he should have done. What what should he have done instead of trying to escape this world? Uh, first of all, I want to give credit where credit is due. I, I, the inspiration for using media, Truman Show at the end of this book came from uh, Henry Jenkins, who um, I had the privilege to some of his earlier articles that he kind of regretted Ray Hollywood did the Truman Show um, because um, it, it's such a bleak interpretation of, of media literacy, right? That that the only real power that you have as a media user is to escape from media, right? From time to time, and and isn't there more to it? And 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 so I took that and ran with it. Like, what would happen if Truman would decided to stay? Uh, but then when I was doing the research and was writing up media life, I increasingly f- started to come back to the Truman Show from a different point of view. Realistic part of the entire movie was the escape uh, moment. And that, that was the only construct. The studio wasn't the construct. I mean, I think we're already living in a studio like that. We're already, uh, every public space is mediated. Uh, I mean, we carry surveillance devices in our own pockets. I mean, it's it's... Uh, we try to make it work the best we can in an increasingly complex world. I mean, we're already living like Truman. Uh, we wear T-shirts and, 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 and with, with logos on them. I mean, we're constantly promoting all kinds of bands and, 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 and uh, designer labels and God, God knows what else, uh, football teams. <laughs> it's not a metaphor. It's real. What is interesting, though, is to what extent um, – are we naively caught up in the illusion like Truman is, or are, can we see the role of Truman on his island with agency, with power? And so that, that was the work of these psychiatrists, Joel and Ian Gold, who talk about this diagnosis that they uh, had with a couple of their patients of a Truman Show delusion, eh, where people uh, come to them with a combination of uh, you know cl- classical uh, pathologies like narcissism and paranoia, l- combined with the Truman Show idea, eh, the idea that everybody in their life are just acting, that their house and the city they live in is a decor, and, and, and that um, they're supposed to be doing something or being followed or, or something like that. And uh, when I was talking with those psychiatrists, they, they said, well, you know, the Truman Show delusion is like the tip of the iceberg. It's like the most extreme uh, disorder uh, of, of this, this, this order version of something that you could assume almost everybody to some extent feels. It's like something is off about the world that we live in. Something seems uncanny, as, as Freud would say. Um, and, um, and, and that uncanniness has creative potential. Because that allows us to do something with the world. I mean, we seem to be, we seem to think that we can intervene in our world, and so so um, yes, I don't think Truman should escape. Or as one of my students once told me, I say, well, he can't escape because when he opens the door of that studio, it just leads into another one, which I thought was a brilliant comment, um, and and I think that's correct. Um, um, but I don't necessarily think that being Truman is, is, is a sad or bleak or kind of controlled version of you. It could be one where you use the cameras to tell a different kind of story, a story about things that truly matter to you, a, thing, a story of things that uh, you care about. And, and, and you know what? I think Arab Spring, Occupy, Indignados, those are examples of people deciding to stick with the Truman Show but not – um, except its dominant script. 
and 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 I wouldn't be surprised. And we've seen this in the past, where where um, American historian, media historian Mitchell Stevens made this um, that one of the consequences of a world shifting from a print culture to a te- te- to a screen culture is that people increasingly look at the world. Uh, uh, almost assuming or thinking that you can fast forward or rewind or free uh, or freeze frame or like look at the world as if it's like a, a montage of video images. Uh, I thought it was a really powerful argument. If you think about today's technology, I think increasingly we look at the world as if it's a, like a video game or, uh, you know, is this something that I can tweet? Is this something that I can edit or copy and paste? Is this something that I can store and access later is this something that i can recommend and forward um, um and and again that's not necessarily a sort of a sad state of affairs unless we do it without thinking about it without being mindful and 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 our thinking about it shouldn't i think be premised on the assumption that we can somehow hold media at a distance from us look at and see it what they do to us but rather embrace them as already part of us and facilitating uh, a more, uh, both a more uh, uh, fun and uh, I think a ethically better engagement with the planet uh, and uh, peeping through at the end right there. Sure. Well, we are coming toward the end of our time. Uh, Mark, what are you working on now? Um, a couple of things. Um, I'm working on a new edition of media work um, um, in the sense that I want to add um, a couple of chapters on people in the music industry and independent artists. I'm working on a multi-year project uh, that's taking me back to journalism. So I um, mean, one thing that we know about journalism is that it's increasingly done by people who don't necessarily work for news organizations or in newsrooms. I mean, more than half of all journalists are independent, they work in writing collectives, they are freelancers, and all kinds of other kind of um, labor arrangements that make them kind of free-floating entities that, that inform us. And um, journalists are done in newsrooms or through unions or other kinds of professional organizations. But uh, So I really want to look at what journalists like that, who they are, how they make it work, what are the issues they face, um, both practically in terms of labor and work arrangements and legal protection, but also culturally, like how do they define themselves? What is journalism becoming if most of our journalism gets done by journalists that aren't involved with news organizations anymore? And I find that a, 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 an interesting way. I mean, it has consequences for the way we teach journalism, I think. It also has consequences for the way we – what we can expect of journalism in, 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 in this 21st century. And, and, and the third uh, uh, ambition that I have, but I'll be honest that I haven't started yet, the, the argument that I make in a Media Life book to empirical projects – to really start looking at um, both old and new research methods, ways to document uh, our media lives. And, and the difficulty there is, of course, if I assume that the power of media lies exactly in the fact that we've become blind to our media, then how do you actually study people living in media? So, so uh, that's a nice uh, methodological challenge that I hope uh, to address in the upcoming years. It sounds interesting, and thanks for sharing it with us. The book is Media Life. The author is Professor Mark Doisy of Indiana University. Mark, thank you for sharing some time with us today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Media Life, written by today's guest, Mark Doisy, at Amazon and other retailers. Thank you for listening.